You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I'd ask now that you would guide my words, Lord, that you would just command our hearts to hear from you, Lord, tonight. In Jesus' name, for his sake we pray. So Psalm 17. Now, you may notice in the very, well, in the, they call it the, the subscription or the superscription, the, the little title at the top of the psalm, it says, A Prayer of David. So we are here going to get a little glimpse into the prayer life of David. And now, personally, I love looking into people's prayer lives. I love reading their prayers that they write. I love looking in their journals. I love snooping in people's Bibles to see their notes. It's just a thing that I like to do. So here, this is a great psalm for me, Psalm 17. We get a little glimpse into David's prayer life. But let me just say a few words about prayer as I was sort of thinking on this and preparing we know don't we as christians that prayer is just absolutely vital to the christian life like many many theologians describe it as breathing to the christian but yet i I just still think if we're very honest with ourselves it is sometimes one of the hardest things to do i mean we can easily sit and listen to a bible study for 40 minutes but to actually sit and pray intently waiting on the lord that's something we probably do less often i would so that's true in my life. you know if we're all honest with ourselves i think that we understand that and i think this is why the disciples asked the lord didn't they the lord teach us to pray and then he gave them that model prayer that's just a fascinating study in itself looking at the prayers in the bible is a great way to learn about prayer if you want a, a book on prayer one i read in my early life was andrew murray's school in the school of prayer uh, i still remember parts of that today it's a wonderful book there's power in prayer At times in this world we feel helpless, we feel beat down. Prayer is an avenue where we can just express our joys, our frustrations, our pain and our emotions to God and we have confidence that he hears us and cares about us. This is some of the things that prayer is for. Now in the culture generally, and I think we maybe fall into this trap sometimes in the Christian church, we have a slight genie mentality towards prayer. You know, it's the genie, you you rub the lamp and you get three wishes. Sometimes we, we sort of think of prayer in that light oh god hasn't answered this prayer but i asked for this prayer and obviously if you listen to a lot of skeptics they will use that challenge a lot why is god not answering your prayers but this really just misunderstands it simplifies what prayer is and it does not understand the relational element that we have that access to the father where we can just pour out our hearts to him whenever we're speaking about prayer i'm always reminded of one of my favorite uh, reformers john knox I'm sure I've shared this with you before, but he was a a Scottish Reformation leader, and it's been said that his greatness lay in his humble dependence and prayer to the sovereign God and his trust for them to save his people, revive a nation and reform his church. He was ministering at the time that Bloody Mary was on the throne. She was obviously Catholic and she was seeking to return England under the control of the Pope, basically. But she's reputed to have said this, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. I love that statement. I mean, what a man of prayer he must have been for the Queen of England to say something like that about him. It's said that John Knox believed that one man with God is always the majority, and that's all you need. One of his most famous and passionate prayers, probably the statement that he's most well known for in church history, is that simple prayer where he said, give me Scotland or I die. That was the heart of this man i believe that's just a wonderful example for us i love church history another example 
You may have heard, might have heard of St. Patrick. We have St. Patrick's Day today. There's a lot of legend, a lot of mythology surrounding that man. But the actual 5th century Christian believer, is his story is fascinating. He was at 16, St. Patrick was, he wasn't a saint then, he was just Patrick. He was kidnapped in a raid and taken to a very pagan island at the time where he was, uh, for six years, he was uh, sort of a slave to a, a chieftain clan there. After six years, he escaped, and then at the age of 40, he returned to evangelize the Irish, and he had great success in doing that. There's a very famous prayer that's attributed to him. It's called, Christ be with me. Let me read it to you. He says, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, and Christ above me. Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit, Christ where I arise. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks to me. Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Salvation is of the Lord, salvation is of the Christ. May your salvation, Lord, be ever with us. I could go on with examples of famous prayers that we have written through church history. They're rich, they're worth looking into, and I can guarantee you just sitting and reading three or four of them will really make you want to pray. But here we go, let's get into Psalm 17 and look at David's prayer. Let's read the first five verses together. It says, Hear a just cause, O Lord, give heed to my cry, give ear to my prayer which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. So we have here in the first verse, David's whole prayer here is really predicated upon what he calls his just cause. His just cause, you see it in verse 1. Now most people assume he's really referencing, or he has in his mind, his behaviour in the whole incident that we looked at so much through 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Chronicles, where he's fleeing and sort of that sort of cat and mouse that we have in the wilderness with King Saul and the time where he had a chance to take revenge on him and he didn't, he let him go, and he's referring to, to all of these things. It says he tried his heart. And you notice he invites God to search his heart. And that's a big, you know, don't let that statement pass by. That shows a willingness to have the light of the Lord shine into all those dark places in our hearts and to be corrected. This shows you the humble heart of David. Although he knows he messed up, he knows he did stuff wrong in instances, he invited the Lord to search him. And he's saying here that in this instance, he, he is just. Notice in verse, uh, the end of verse 3, it says, You have tested me and find nothing, and I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. It says, I have purposed. That he's made a conscious decision that his mouth will not transgress. And I think this is one reason why his cause is so just, and he can say that, is because even though he had been wronged so much by Saul, who tried to kill him and chased him out of the kingdom and these sorts of things, he still would not speak wrong of Saul. He still respected God's anointed. He purposed in his heart that he would not let his mouth transgress. And I think there's a very important lesson for us here. I would say, in what, over sort of 15 years of being involved in ministry and watching ministry take place, and all the unusual situations that that throws at you, 
I'd still stand by my statement that some of the most destructive and hurtful and damaging things come from our own mouths, from our tongues, how we talk about one another, how easy it is to ruin someone's image, to tear someone down, to let bitterness uh, influence our opinion of people. I don't really feel like I need to explain that any further. I'm pretty sure that we've been in this world. We know what I'm talking about there. And I'd also probably say it's a fairly safe bet that all of us at some point have been both the person who has said the words that tear someone down or, and also been on the receiving end of words that have that sort of effect. And we know the pain, but yet it's one of those things that just seems to crop up a lot. And the Bible doesn't leave it untouched. There's actually huge amounts of the Bible relating to this subject. I would say, well, I wouldn't know how to quantify it, but there is a lot. There's lots in the New Testament, there's lots in the law, there's lots in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. Proverbs 18.21, the tongue has the power of life and death. The tongue has the power of life and death. It reminds you of James, doesn't it? The tongue is like a fire, and once it sort of sets fire, it's hard to put it out. They took this statement in Proverbs very literally in the Jewish mindset, and they would attribute the, the, the sin of what they call tail-bearing, slander of another person. They considered it equal with murder. In the same sense, as from this verse, the tongue has power over life and death. The reason why is because when you say something, you know, you can kill someone with your words, you can kill yourself by saying words, and you can also kill the person who's listening to your words. They, kill, they took it very, very seriously. And I believe it's a good lesson for us, and we need to follow David's example here and purpose in our hearts that our mouths would not transgress. Verse 6, I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O saviour of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed their unfeeling heart, with their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps, they set our eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear, and as a young lion lurking in hiding places. David trusts God in all of these psalms here for his protection. You see those phrases, apple of his eye, under the shadow of our wings. They sort of evoke a very strong imagery of something being very, very intimate and well protected. That's what David is here saying. God is doing that to him. Let's just read, read to the end of the psalm and then we'll make a few closing comments. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. And you notice here David sort of ends this psalm with a contrast between the men of the world, as he calls it, sort of, slightly familiar phrase there from the book of Revelation, but the men of the world, and then obviously David and the righteous in this sense. Remember, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago in, in a Sunday morning, didn't we? Storing up treasures in heaven. It says that the men of the world, their portion is in this life. That means their heart and their minds are focused on gaining pleasure, storing up treasures, and all the things that the world has to offer in this life. But David says in verse 15, as for me, it reminds me of what Joshua said. Do you remember what Joshua said? As for me and my house, 
we will serve the Lord. Very similar statement now for David. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. The men of the world, they get their reward here. They get their treasure. They get what they work for in some respect. And even the wicked seem to prosper in that. But David knows that his true treasure will be seeing the resurrected king in all his glory. Seeing him face to face. True satisfaction for the believer is to be found in the face of our Lord. And it says in the New Testament, in the face of quite literally, of Christ Jesus. You see, our desire should be when we're tempted to seek our portion in this life, it's easy to fall into that mindset because we have goals, we have things we need to do, we have bills we need to pay, and there's nothing wrong with doing that, absolutely. However, it's a matter of sort of perspective. You see, if you have those things at the centre of your life and your Christianity is the periphery around the side, what will happen is that that centre part, all those things, will just continue to get larger and larger as you go on through life. Because the further you go through life, the more things you have to deal with. And that means that the, the peripheral, the Christianity, just gets pushed further and further from your life. And before you know it, you're sort of operating in two separate zones, and it's not a good place to be. You want to have Christianity at the centre, the epicentre, so to speak, and then all those other things can be the periphery. And as you input into your life, that centre grows with Christ, until they're almost touching and everything, even the secondary things, are now brought under the dominion of Christ in our lives. And that's the, world, the mindset that the Christian should have. And I believe that is really expressed here in David's sort of cry. I've seen them, they have their portion. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And he's saying, when I awake, that sort of means he's talking about if he dies and when he goes to sea and he finds himself in the presence of the Lord, that is true pleasure he says satisfaction nothing can beat that we must remember that in our own life too psalm 17 a small insight into the life and the mind of david which i love there particularly that verse 15 for me that would be my memory verse on that psalm psalm 18 now i'm sure many of you are probably just flipping through your bibles and you're noticing that psalm 18 is a rather long psalm it's actually the fourth longest psalm in the entire psalter However, we are going to go through it rather quickly, not because it hasn't got great stuff in it, but because this is actually a repeat, this psalm. This psalm is actually quoted in the book of 2 Samuel 22, actually as part of the text, and we would have, we've been through those historical books recently, and we've dealt with a, a lot of the period that this psalm is relating to. But for completeness, we are going to read the whole thing, and there's a few things I, I want to pull out from it. So this is a, a psalm that was written after the death of Saul, when David now has sort of secured his place, his kingdom. So we, we would call this a victory psalm. Let's read verses 1 to 3. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. So he starts off really by relating what God is to him. He's his strength, his rock, his fortress, and his deliverer. Think of all those terms just in that one or two sentences there. He's his strength, his rock, his fortress, and his deliverer. That is just something that all of us need in this life. Now, I think I taught on it back sort of a couple of years ago on this, when they, we had the sort of the 70th uh, anniversary of the establishment of the state of Israel but when they they stood up all those years ago in 1948 and they read the declaration of independence they used this phrase as a designation for God let me just read the relevant portion 
At the end of the declaration, they said this, placing our trust in the rock of Israel. We affix our signatures to this proclamation at this session, and on and on it goes. Now, obviously, they used that term, trying to placate the, the secular Zionists, so they didn't put the actual name of God in there, and they, were, they came up with using this term, the rock of Israel, as sort of a, a middle ground. And it always, always makes me laugh, because the rock of Israel is not a middle ground. It's a very definite and positive name for God that we find in the Bible. So I sort of feel like the religious group in Israel kind of pulled one under the rug there, but they, you know, they knew what they were doing when they suggested that. Let me read you Deuteronomy 32. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness, without injustice, righteousness, and upright is he. That's everything that is evoked by this term, the rock. His work is perfect, ultimately because he is perfect. And being perfect, that means he can never change for the better, because he's already as perfect as he can be. And being perfect, he cannot ever change for the worse, because... God does not change. Ultimate perfection found in this rock. Let's read verses 4 to 19. It's big chunks, we're just going to read the whole lot really. David in these sections now, he really rehearses the deliverance that God gave him. So he's sort of in a poetic form, he goes through his time in the wilderness, running from Saul and the times he escaped. And let's just read it. Verse 4, the cords of death encompassed me and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured, coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them, and the lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. Then the channels of water appeared and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of the many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me, he delighted in me. Now, some of that language there, Saul is, David is not claiming that he was sinless, in all, that he was a sinless person. Some people sort of have trouble with that language there. Again, I think he's just saying, in this situation, he did have the just cause. It's kind of connected to what we read in the last, uh, last psalm. Saul was the one pursuing him who was trying to kill him, even though David was truly God's uh, anointed at this time. Let's read verse 20 to 29. So now... He's just related the deliverance that God gave him. Now he sort of touches on the basis for that victory. Verse 20, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. Again, it's not that he's saying he's sinless, it's just in relation to this incident. 
For I have kept the ways of the Lord, I have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his ordinances were before me, and I did not put away his statutes before me. I was also blameless with him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. What he's saying here is that in the whole midst of this, he had the word of God in his mind, and he obeyed the statutes of God, and his conduct was being led by the word of God. 24, there the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hand, cleanness of my hands in his eyes. With the kind you show yourself kind, with the blameless you show yourself blameless, with the pure you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you show yourself astute. For you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. For you, like my lamp, the Lord my God looms my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. So again, he, he ends this basis, not starts off by saying that he feels that he's uh, done right in this situation according to the word of God, but then he ends it again with just a, a lovely expression of God's character. You're kind, you show yourself kind, you're pure, you show yourself pure, you save the afflicted, you are the light of the world and you illumine my path. And again, you sort of see the New Testament language that this is drawing from when Jesus made all these famous statements, you know, Jesus, the ultimate descendant of David, that he is the light of the world and we should follow him. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I kind of see a, an echo of that here in David's language, which is fascinating. Let's read verse 30. Uh, to 48 and again we have a very similar phrase here to how he started this, this declaration that God is the rock of Israel and he further recounts some of the victories that uh, God gave him at this time verse 30 as for God his way is blameless the word of the Lord is tried he is a shield to all who take refuge in him for who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God. Again, he, you can sort of, I love this, it's a very theological statement that we're having here from David. As for God, his way is blameless. It means it's straight, quite literally. The word of the Lord is tried, it's tested, as it's elsewhere in the Psalms, it's purified seven times, like refined silver. It's got no impurities in it. It's just a wonderful thought and picture if we have the word of the word of God here. God is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. Remember David saying he was on the run here from literal physical enemies. Obviously we have, we don't thankfully have that in this country, but we have those spiritual enemies, those spiritual darts of the wicked one, and we need the shield of God too. We can take refuge in him. He is God, only God. He is the rock. This is again, rock sort of has that foundation, that strength to it. Verse 32, the God who girds me with strength makes my way blameless, he makes my feet like hind's feet and sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand upholds me. Your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me and my feet have not slipped. You see, this is a long psalm, but if you were to go through this psalm and pull out all the positive statements that David says here about God, you would be left with just a massive paragraph of the purely beautiful descriptions of God. Not only descriptions, but also his sort of characteristics here. He put his gentleness, his greatness, his strength, his security, his refuge, all these things. It's just wonderful the way David interlaces these with his narrative, like we say, thinking about what was going on in his life through all this time. 
Uh, let's just read a little bit further. Verse 37. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and I did not turn back until they were consumed. I shattered them so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. They cried for help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. I emptied them out as the mire of the streets. You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as head of the nations, a people whom I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you will lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. And this is very much what David, uh, what God did in David's life at this time. Now let's just read, the, I'll finish, let's finish the psalm and then we'll make a few closing comments on this. Verse 49 and 50 are interesting. Therefore I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord, and I will sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. These last two verses are really David's final resolve that in light of everything that he's just recounted, how the Lord protected him, how the Lord was his rock, his refuge, his strength, his hiding place, the characteristics that he's relayed about God, in light of all of this, all he can do is say, you know, I will praise you, God, because of that. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations. Because David was soon, he was now king. Saul, Saul was dead. He was going to be king of all Israel, that nation that was going to be a light to all the nations. And here he commits that he will give praise to God to all the nations. And this is a very good example of the ministry of the church in some ways. Because we are now a body formed by the greater descendant of David, the great king who is a descendant of David. And our mission is now is to proclaim his name and to give glory to his name and praise his name and proclaim it among the nations. You see that sort of prophetic interplay going on here. And that's not just me making that up. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul actually quotes from this psalm here. In Romans 15 verse 9, he says this. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promise given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. So Paul has this picture here of this ultimate descendant of David who is the one that the Gentiles will now praise among the nations. It's just a wonderful picture of what Christ has done, a wonderful fulfillment of some of these uh, covenantal promises that we see all the way back in the Old Testament. And because of that, I think this psalm is worth just reading and rereading. There's so much in it. But for me, what stood out really was those last few verses, the way it's fulfilled in Jesus, and just all those wonderful descriptions in that poetic language that we have of God's character. And sometimes in this world when we are feeling a little beaten down, we're feeling like David, we're hiding in the caves and the hills, the enemies are chasing us, you know, all those things, whether it be depression lurking at your door or bills weighing on you, that's when we take refuge in God. And we just recount and we, we go through these promises and God will be with us. Let's move into Psalm 19. 
The heavens are declaring the glory of God. So, Psalm 19. Now, this is actually one of my favourite psalms in the whole Psalter, so I wanted to spend a little bit more time on it than those other two. That's why we've gone through those ones. It's a hugely theological psalm. A lot of people who do apologetics love this psalm, and I'll explain why as we do this. We're going to see David explain to us two ways of God, two ways that God communicates to his people information about himself. And obviously for us as Christians, we want to learn every single thing we can about God. How he communicates these things is very important to us. C.S. Lewis, famous uh, Christian apologist and, and writer, he said this about Psalm 19. He says, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in all the world. C.S. Lewis knew his literature and he considers this to be one of the greatest lyrics in all the world. It's only 14 verses, but it draws such acclaim from people like Lewis that it's definitely worth our attention in some respects. So he will go through the two types of revelation that we have. One of these is called general revelation. The other is called special revelation. Let me just explain those terms to you before we go. Cheers, darling. Thanks, buddy. General revelation. So that is that which can be communicated through the created order. So we see this in the first few verses of the psalm that we'll read in a moment. And then you have special revelation. Special revelation is that specific knowledge of God that comes from revealed truth in the scriptures. So you have general revelation, that which can be known about God through creation, and special revelation, the specific details, the plan of salvation that we find revealed to us in the scriptures. Now we must remember, general revelation is always secondary to special revelation. It's a big point. I see a lot of Christians making this mistake. There's a whole movement in apologetics where they like to call nature the 67th book of the Bible. You know, the Bible has 66 books. A lot of apologists will say that nature is the 67th book and they almost put, I would say, secular interpretations of science and nature on par with scripture when they make that statement. But you cannot do that. Now, whilst there are many wonderful things you can glean about God from creation, we have to interpret creation through special revelation because the Bible says that this creation is suffering under the curse, which means this is a theological issue and that has affected nature. So we must remember that this is a fallen world and we interpret that through the word of God. Now, there are some very powerful arguments that we can get from the natural world. We call this natural theology, um, arguments that are usually used by apologists for the existence of God. So like the cosmological argument, that's an argument that uses the concept of beginning of the universe to argue for a first cause, a first cause that must be outside of time, very powerful. And they make some pretty impressive arguments from that. You've got the arguments from design. They call them the teleological arguments. These are all the, the arguments from, you know, biological complexity in living systems, and there's a whole stream of them. Some people, the, the way that the universe is specifically designed to support life. These are all design arguments of various different shades, and they are, I find some of them to be very, very powerful. However, you must go further than that, I, I believe. We must go and actually reveal who the designer is if we're using designer arguments. We must reveal who the first cause is if we're using those arguments, and match it up with the special revelation that we have in the scripture. And when you do those two things, you're left with some very powerful arguments for the God of the scriptures. So let's just read the first four verses here. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech 
and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. So, we have here those very famous verses, most people know these, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Now the heavens here is really referring to the, the expanse of the heavens, the space, sky, the, the celestial bodies, the planets, all these sorts of things. And it says they show us about God. Now I appreciate this concept. Uh, I'm sure many of you do when you, you know, on the, watching the, the waves sort of crash in, when you're sitting out watching the stars, you have that sort of sense of wonder and you feel very small and the universe is so massive uh, and you see that sunset from your window and you have that feeling that someone must be responsible for this and you know what we want to do today is usually we want to put it on our instagram feed and we put a sort of song on the background don't we make it look all sort of nice and people think we're having this amazing experience as we're sitting inside probably watching tv at the same time but that is what we do but i see david not doing that but he was obviously he was a shepherd he sat out under the stars loads of times and I'm sure he contemplated uh, these sorts of things when he was looking up but notice what he says notice what the verse says and this is again we often miss this in these all these sort of academic arguments which are which I love but we want to go further than that it says the heavens are telling of the glory of God it doesn't say the heavens are telling of the existence of God okay so it's not just his existence that is really the point here it's that the heavens are telling of the glory of god the one who created this the heavens are speaking that this is a glorious being the glory of god is referring to the fullness of his being the sum of all his divine attributes moral qualities and infinite power to create all of this david looks at the heavens the stars the sun the day the night and he sees the glory of god God is glorious in his power, God is glorious in his intelligence, he's glorious in his artistry, and he's glorious in his goodness and his kindness. Because he's created something so vast, he's created something that is so intricately designed, something that is so beautiful, and something that is just for us to enjoy and see in some respects. This environment for us. This is natural uh, theology, natural revelation, or general revelation as we call it. And we do see a, a warrant for this in scripture. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 verse 20 um, sort of references, it's like a New Testament equivalent. He says this, for, for his invisible attributes, referring to God obviously, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Now again, I love that verse. It's a very powerful verse. So it is saying that it would seem that just the very existence of some of these things that we, we've been talking about is enough for people not to have an excuse. And that really makes you think about some of the explanations that we have in the secular world of how these things came to be or some of the explanations that we still don't have on many of these things. The created order is sufficient to make unbelief untenable. So the question is, why is this concept resisted so persistently? Why do we see so much unbelief in the world because it's not really a matter of evidence, I would say. Although people often like to claim that it is purely related to evidence. There's a place for providing evidence, of course. But it is, more often than not, a matter of the will. Because the evidence is all around us. That is uh, general revelation. We could go into that a lot more, but I really want to focus on the second half of this psalm, 
a little bit more. He turns his attention now to the glory of special revelation, the word of God. Now we see in these next sort of three or four verses a wonderful description. We have six titles for the word of God. We have six descriptions for the word of God and then six results for the word of God. Let's read uh, verse 7. Read a few verses. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now again, let me just say, we read that word law and often we think of the Ten Commandments or the Mosaic legislation. And yes, it can be used in that strict, smaller sense sometimes, but obviously remember that the basic concept here is teaching. The teaching of the Lord, the instruction of God, of the Lord, is perfect. And it's a little like, remember we just read in the previous psalm, the rock is perfect. So therefore, because of his pure perfection, of course his word is going to be absolutely perfect too. The Bible says in 2 Peter that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything we need to journey through this world as pilgrims, he has given us. With the sun, obviously with the deposit that we have in the securing and the sealing of the Holy Spirit to guide us, and with the illumination of the light and the word of God. All things pertaining to godliness. It is sufficient for us in this life. It needs no addition from human philosophy, science or psychology. That's not to demean those disciplines in many ways. However, I do believe that we have to have Christ at the centre. Again, it goes back to those two circles. We need to remember this. It's very easy to be tempted, particularly in, in our culture today, to take it upon ourselves to update certain bits of the word of God maybe that we don't feel comfortable with, maybe to remove certain bits that are a little bit offensive to modern sensibilities or some parts that we just wince at and we don't want to talk about. Now, I'd say it's okay to have doubts and questions about the Word of God. Honestly, it's okay. You will, if, you know, you, I'd say you're not learning if you're not developing questions and going through. But the church is a place where it should be a place where you can go through these doubts and learn more and be ministered to by the word of God but we must resist the temptation to take the power or the authority from the word by either adding or subtracting to it this is a big thing that has happened over many many years many many times it's how most cults are started when people add their own revelation to the word of God so it says the word of God the law of the Lord is perfect it restores the soul now the Bible is perfect it lacks nothing but part of it is that it has effective power. The word of God is living and active, isn't it? What does that mean? It's, this is what the concept of inspiration means. It has that living element. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of God can actually change us, can revive our soul. Think what Paul wrote to Timothy and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to give you the wisdom of salvation through Jesus Christ. This is what the word of God does. Then he says the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The term sure there, that means verified, that means it can be trusted, that means it is reliable. Again, it gets us through this sort of pilgrimage that we have to the celestial city, if I could use Bunyan's language. It also has the meaning of a firm foundation. You see, the word of God is utterly dependable and placing your hope in it is wise. 
and it says it makes wise the simple. And this is, again, it's a very confusing world right now, I'll be honest, I'll say that. A lot of things going on are quite confusing. We have something sure that we can rest upon in times of confusion, the Word of God. It makes wise the simple, that's not an insult. The simple is really referring here to those whose hearts and mind are not prejudiced or caught up in the idols of human reason. That's all of us at this point. And what it means is that when we look at the world through the Word of God, we apply the Word of God, we have that biblical worldview, and that is how it makes us wise, because we see things for what they are, because we're guided by the light of the world. It sounds simple, I know it's harder than that in practice, but these are the basic elements. And then it says the precepts, verse 8, of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. They are right in the sense, I believe this is talking of righteousness. They come from a being who is himself righteous. They give instruction and wisdom into how we should walk. In fact, so much so that when we are living in obedience to the word of God, the Apostle Paul describes us as being living epistles, living letters, not written with ink, but written on our hearts by the Spirit of God. And I always love that imagery that he's creating there, because what do you do with an epistle? What do we do with an epistle here? We, we read it and we study it. And this is saying that the world, because you are a living epistle, because you have the Spirit of God in you and you are living out the word of God in your life, you are an epistle to the world, that means the world is reading and studying you. You know, this is, this is the sort of thing, it's just such a lovely picture. And again, that's a big responsibility. We need the grace of God and the power of the Spirit and the light of the Word of God to do that. The precepts of the Lord are, are right. Rejoicing the heart. You see, knowing the Word, knowing that it is right, knowing the God of the Word will bring actual joy to your life. Pleasure in the revealed truth and the relationship that you have with him is one of the greatest benefits and privileges of being a Christian. Now that's not to say you don't go through all the trials and tribulations and all the things that you have in a fallen world that come upon you, but even in the midst of them, you have that access to this God. Remember the God we talked about, the God, the rock, who is perfect, the one who cannot improve, the one who cannot get worse. That is our surety that we have here, and the word of God represents that. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Again, pure here, this is sort of the concept of, of holiness, kadosh, you would say in Hebrew, is that it is set apart, it is so far above and separate from everything else that we have, it contains nothing impure, it's been refined, and we read that in the last psalm. It's, the, it's tried, it's tested. We never worry about the word of God leading people into sin. Now, people can misuse the word of God and lead people into sin, of course, but we never have to worry about the word of God leading people into sin. It means the word can also have a sort of connotation of bright and radiance. And this is, you know, again, we've talked about it. A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And it says it enlightens the eyes. It lights the path as we walk in this world. It is a world of darkness in many, in many ways. But we are like those little lanterns, if you could imagine sort of standing above the earth. You've all seen those satellite images where you see from space and the lights, with countries that have no lights and some that have lots of lights. It's a little bit like that in the spiritual sense too. We're supposed to be those people that have oil in our lamps. We have the word of God and we are acting like uh, little, little lamps as we walk around being these living epistles. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now the fear, again, this is, it might seem like a sort of slightly strange title for, for something in the Word of God. I believe it's really focusing on the aspect of the Word that produces reverence and awe. Psalm 119 verse 38 phrases it like this. Establish your Word to your servant 
as that which produces reverence for you. Now, we live in a very irreverent culture in many ways, particularly as it relates to God and all things related to Christianity. You will find a lot of irreverence. And it's easy, again, to just sort of fall into that habits with things that we do and we think and the way we say. The antidote to that, I believe, this verse that I've just read from Psalm 119, it is the word of God. The more you read the word of God and see God revealed to you from scripture, it will give you greater reverence for God, which will impact how you live. That's why it says the fear of the Lord is clean. It will keep you clean and therefore you will be able to use it to clean others. How can a young man cleanse his way? By keeping it according to your word. It says it endures forever. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Again, Psalm 119, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Forever your word is settled in in heaven. There's no debate about it to be had. There's no differences of opinion in that sense when it's from heaven. It's settled. It's done. The rules of the Lord are true. It's the last one we have here. The right and righteous all together. And it acts as a very good summation of all those previous points he's just said. Given everything, all those descriptions we've just heard about the word of God, he says the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous. And there's nothing really I want to add to that. We know what true and righteous means. Let's look at verse 10. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So they are more valuable than material wealth and more valuable than all the sensual experiences that the world can offer. Now again, we've lost this understanding in the West. In fact, a big part of Western civilization and Western history is the story of how people discovered this truth here. People who were giving their lives just so they could have one little bit of scripture. We still see this in many parts of the world today where they know the falseness and the emptiness of many other parts of life, but they're starving for the word of God. There's that famine for the word of God in the land. But we're at a stage, I believe, in history where people are just we've lost this and that means people will get hungry and that means the church still has that job to be the administer of the word of god we, we distribute it to the people in that sense it says with verse 11 moreover by them your servant is warned again this is a strong statement the word of god is corrective in that sense for a christian it can guide us and correct our behavior it's a warning that uh, for us in life that if we are straying from the path of being conformed to his image, the image of his son, which is the ultimate issue that predestination deals with in the Bible, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If we are straying from that path, the word of God serves as our warning. This is in true for individuals, this is true for people, this is true for churches, this is true for governments, in all these sense, the word of God is a warning. It says, in keeping them is great reward. Great reward for me, really, this is just Jesus' statement. I've come to give them life, and life in its fullness. This is fullness of life. A life lived in relationship with the King, the Creator, fulfilling your purpose. Verses 12 and 13, he really gives a, a response here. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults and keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. This is his desire for inward cleansing now. You see, David looks at himself in light of the teachings and the warnings of the word of God. He knows that his errors are probably more than he can imagine. He knows that he needs the grace of God. And he asks for cleansing. 
And it's just that little phrase there that always bothers me. Verse 13, presumptuous sins. Okay, think about that. We all know what sin is. We all know when we commit sin, don't we? But there's a, this is a presumptuous sin. These would be things that we know are wrong, we know from the word of God, convictions in our souls, but we still do them. Not only that, we plan to do them, or we plan not to do them or not to take any active steps not to do them, if you see what I mean. We all fall into cycles like that sometimes. Habitual sins, they often call them, repetitive sins. Now, God can break any cycle of sin, I believe, but there are things, and it'll be indiv- you know, probably different with each individual, we have presumptuous sins in our life, things that we know areas that we are weak in. And David here is illustrating that he had this too. But he's actually asking the Lord, this is a good example for us how we deal with this, you ask the Lord, you pray to him, keep me back from these presumptuous sins, do not let them rule over me. Because sin is sort of like like tentacles, you know, you, you do it once and you get tangled up in it, and it's very hard to break that cycle. But David here is saying, you know, and we all know he fell into some sin, he's saying, Lord, let them not rule over me and then let's look let's just read the final final few verse let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight O lord my rock and my redeemer in light of everything he said the telling of the glory of god in creation the glory of god in the revealed scriptures next to such a glorious god david knew himself to be a sinner and he now offers a plea of submission to the will of god And this is, again, a good example. We need to stop fighting, stop striving, stop wrestling sometimes, and just submit to the Lord in our lives. Easier said than done. It gives you an example here. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. So mouth and heart. David knew that it was not just words. Words are cheap, they say so in some respects, meaning that it's easy to say something and betray it with your actions but it's words and deeds, words and heart, the internal thoughts of a man's heart. Remember, God sees these. Remember David in Psalm 17, he said, Lord, you've searched my heart, you've tried my heart. He invited God in to expose those areas where he wasn't, his mouth and his meditation of his heart was not giving honour to God. It was not acceptable, and God shined a light on that. This is the same sort of attitude that we need to have. Remember Joshua, the book of the law, Joshua 1.8, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Meditating and study of the word of God will impact how you live. For any of you who have ever really got into the word of God yourself, you will know this to be true. It changes the way you think about things, it changes what you want to do, and that is the continual thing that I believe we'll be learning ever since, until we have our moment where we awake and we see Jesus face to face. We will be learning and growing by the input of the word of God and our character will be being shaped to the image of Christ. David ends on a glorious note. He has this threefold repetition or threefold proclamation of God's character in that very last verse. It's a wonderful verse. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The word Lord there is all capitals. That is referring that it is the holy name of God, the, the Yahweh in Hebrew. That means it is the covenant keeping, faithful, personal name of God. It's significant that David ends this psalm using the personal covenant-keeping name of God. But then he uses that term that he's so fond of, the rock. So not only is God the intimate covenant-keeping, faithful, personal God, he is the rock. The rock was perfect, remember we read. The rock is a firm foundation, the rock has strength, the rock is a refuge for those who are in danger. 
But then he also adds, and my redeemer. The Goel, this is the kinsman redeemer. If you remember the book of Ruth, this is the concept that comes up of the, the near relative who can set a relative free from slavery or bankruptcy. And this is obviously pointing forward to Jesus Christ, who was our kinsman redeemer. This is where that language comes from. A redeemer who is able to redeem us and place us into relationship with himself, paying the penalty for our sins. It's a redeemer who promises that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. This is the mighty, glorious God of creation. It is also the rock. It is also the personal redeeming saviour that we see in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And like David, I believe we need to remember these three aspects of God's character as we live in this world. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that you are our redeemer firstly, that you are our kinsman redeemer, that you've redeemed us from slavery to sin, that you've paid the penalty for our sins, Lord God, and that we can have relationship with you. Our security is found in you, the rock of Israel and that you are a covenant-keeping and faithful God. And I pray, Lord, for all of us here as saints, that we would be learning more of you every day, even in our failures, Lord, and in our times of trouble, you would be teaching us, guiding us by the light of your word and the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theology and apologetics if you've been blessed by this podcast please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media for more resources please go to theologyandapologetics.com thanks for listening